Building a stronger financial foundation? Good plan. Northwestern Mutual's Guide to Good Financial Planning can help you balance spending and saving, set goals, and start creating the life you want to be living. You'll learn how the tools in your financial plan reinforce each other to help you minimize taxes and offset potential risks. Grow your confidence by strengthening your finances today at northwesternmutual.com slash goodplan. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. This is episode 16 of the Bowery Boys. The Statue of Liberty enlightening the world. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Bowery Boys. I'm Tom Myers. And I'm Greg Young. Thanks for joining us again this week. And Greg, thank you to your voice for joining us. Again. I, it's, it sounds so full and rich right now, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, you should have heard me the day after the podcast. It sounded like alfalfa. <laughs> but well, we're in any normal. case, yes. we're glad to be here today and we're embarking on Lady Liberty. Yeah, it's this may sound like, oh, this is the most cliche New York history podcast you can possibly do. but And maybe it is. And maybe it is, but... You know, we have to go there. And I, I, I was thinking as a, as a New Yorker who has lived here for many, many years, how sometimes you just take it for granted. Or for granite. Or for granite. And you shouldn't, isn't. Ta- you shouldn't no. take it for, gra- for granite because it's not made of granite, nor should you take it for granted. Right. Um, so we're going to actually kind of find what's up Lady Liberty's skirt, so to speak. If you will, yes. Sit back. And also at the very end of the episode, I'll give you some tips if you're a native New Yorker on why you should go out to visit the statue. And if you're a tourist, why there might be ways to see the statue that aren't the official way. I'll let you know what that means. Stay tuned for Lady Liberty. The story of the Statue of Liberty, Tom, yes. starts at a dinner party. Well, it is a French story, Yes, right? so crack open your French <laughs> wine, your baguettes. Mm. We're going to the state of the esteemed Edouard René Lefebvre de Laboulet. <laughs> That's acceptable. What, what so we're s- going to Laboulet. 1855, Laboulet came out with a three-volume history of the U.S., and and he was a renowned scholar. He really was a big lover of the U.S. because of the democratic ideals mm-hmm. that it represented, and which the French Revolution also represented. Um, and at this point in time, they had sort of retreated a bit from those ideals and were back subjected to Napoleon III's developing monarchy. So, so there, if there was an ulterior motive, I guess, of sort of like, well, look at what America's been doing with their, you know, with their revolution. Look where they're at and then look where right. we're at. And don't forget what we've been 
through by the time of this dinner party in 1865. Mm-hmm. We'd been through oh sure, of course, a civil war, an assassination, the abolition of slavery. We had been through a lot as a young country and held it together somehow near the end. So they wanted to reward basically the 100th anniversary of our revolution, uh, which would be around the corner in 1876. They just he sat around and they said they wanted to do some sort of a monument or some sort of an honor of some sort. And this was just at a dinner party. I mean, how are they deciding this? Well, you know, it's, they're philosophers or intellectuals. This is so what they're they talk sitting about. around. They're talking about how to reward the U.S. How to give a gift that would be symbolic. Well, someone at the table had that idea, and his name was Frederick Bartholdi. He wanted to do an actual statue, like a monument. Bartholdi was a sculptor, and as a matter of fact, in Union Square in New York City, he actually did a sculpture of the Marquis de Lafayette, which you can still visit, that's oh. there. He came up with this idea that he wanted to do some kind of a monument. Now, in 1869, he presented an entry in a design competition for a lighthouse at the Suez Canal, which was being built in Egypt. And very curiously, it was a statue of a woman. Carrying uh-huh. a torch. Uh-huh. Very similar silhouette as uh, the Lady Liberty. It was not chosen. While he was in Egypt, he actually became inspired by all these gigantic monuments. And, you know, he, he saw this a sort of like classicalness to them that he thought that he needed to bring to what he wanted to do for the United States. He brought in a few other little ideas, some of them actually classical-based at all. He decided that he wanted to base the statue on Libertas. Mm. This was a minor, a Roman goddess of liberty. Uh, she actually had two little tiny temples in Rome, but she wasn't a major goddess. You know, the French were enamored of these ancient classical traditions, so it made sense to like kind of reach back there for an inspiration. But the French had also put the image of Libertas on their coins in the Second Re- in the Second Republic. So yes. Yeah, so so at was- this point, Libertas, right? This this woman was recognizable. She was a na- it was a natural that he would have thought of this. He also thought of the Colossus of Rhodes, another cl- classical of old uh, one of the seven ancient wonders, was a gigantic statue that stood in stood in the harbor of the Greek island Rhodes. Right. It was only around for like 54 years and it was a man with his arm outstretched. It was destroyed in an earthquake, but the legend of that added to all these other things, must have certainly inspired him. And a more personal note, as, you'll, as you can see, or as, they, as the models became more and more like what we know the Statue of Liberty to look like, the face of it was apparently inspired by his own mother, Charlotte Bartholdi. Or there's actually many rumors, or they, no one really knows for sure, but right. it looks very similar to her. Right. right, and you can actually look at a portrait of Charlotte, and <laughs> yeah. you see some of those same, you know, handsome, <laughs> distinguished features handsome woman, yes. that you see um, mm. shining forth from the harbor today. And then, of course, you know her little seven-spoked crown-ish thing. Did Charlotte wear a crown? I don't. Maybe she did. Maybe that's where he got the idea for this. You just you never know. No, actually, the seven crown was for the seven spokes of seven continents or seven seas. Is this like bonding of the world together through the number seven? In 1871, Laboulet had another dinner party, and yes. Bartholdi <laughs> came back, and it was at this at this party that Laboulet actually commissioned Bartholdi to make the first statue. But first, he sent him to to the U.S. Well, actually, yeah, he wanted to drum up some interest, drum up some support, and also check out the country to sort of get his own creative juices flowing and get some inspiration. So <laughs> get I, the feel of what Americans were like. Yes. Right. Sure. So Bartoli <laughs> took his rainbow tour of the U.S. Where did he go? 
he went all over the place. I mean, he went up and down the East Coast. He went to Boston, to Philly, of course, to New York, but also inside the country to Chicago, which he considered to be the most American city. Well, Glad they didn't get the statue. (laughs) Denver, St. Louis, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh. He went all over the place. He met with all kinds of... It's a nice road trip. Well, it was even during this trip, wasn't he, where he kind of found where where he wanted to place it in the New York Harbor at this, uh, this island that was called Bedloe Island. It actually had a fort there called Fort Wood that was built... For the War, the War of 1812, and it had a kind of a unique design to it. It had 11 spokes. Many people think it's trying to parallel the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, I was like, what does this sound familiar? No, it's, it's, it's actually not. It was, a, it was an independent design well before the statue was even constructed, but they did call it the Star Fort. So he liked New York especially because it was the port of the U.S. and Bedloe's Island because everybody had to pass it or the ships had mm-hmm. to pass Bedloe's Island on the way into the city. So he went back to France and how did he get it so started? back in Paris then, they said, okay, great. We've got this idea for the statue. We've got people who are interested in it, but we obviously need to drum up the money. Now, France didn't have the money at the time. The government didn't have the money. They weren't going to actually oh, pay for it's this kind of thing. extraneous. I mean, if you just, you know, we want to send someone a big present. You Th- know? They had their own <laughs> issues to deal mm-hmm. with, right? So Laboulaye in 1875 drew some people together and formed the Franco-American Union, mm-hmm. uh, which was basically a fundraising project. It's important to note, of course, that this was a group of people. It wasn't this it wasn't the government no, who it was, was actually concerned going in, citizens, right? Right. Private citizens who were raising the money themselves. They would pay for the statue and Labelli devised a plan by which the statue would be built and paid mm-hmm. for by the French people and the American citizens would pay for the pedestal and the actual installation. This works in theory. Of the statue. Yeah. Right. So in September of 75, they start publishing fundraising ads and you know, right. in the French papers and also in the U.S. papers and, and start throwing these great banquets at the Louvre. Did they have and, like a lottery? Like, is this yeah. true? Like they had like a lottery. They sold like thousands and thousands of tickets just to raise money. Right. Over the course of the next couple of years, they'd try all of these different fundraising mm-hmm. techniques and schemes. And he was, he was quite a showman. Well, it, well, just as they do today even though they didn't actually have a statue of Liberty, he even sold miniature statues, right? right? Like little versions to sort of like get people excited of like, this is what it's going to look like. Yeah. So they took this little prototype statue that they had to mm-hmm. a foundry yes. uh, that would actually be in charge of figuring out how to build it. To I mean, it how together. do you build the statue? It's like hard. It's, it's, I mean, these gigantic pieces that must be put together. Or How do you do that? Is it, or is it one gigantic piece that you carve? I mean, like some <laughs> gigantic piece of rock. The foundry was called the Mondouille and Bechet Foundry in Paris, and they hired the engineer Violet Le Duc, who is very well known at the time, to construct the internal part of the statue. Because mm-hmm. you have to think, on top of everything else, you've got this statue, and people are going to be inside of it, and they're going to be climbing up a staircase, they're going to be doing all of this. How do you make that work? So that's the situation in France. Right, okay. Meanwhile, back in the U.S. Right. Well, by this point, you know, one, like you said earlier, one of the er, one of the ways to drum up some support was actually to show them what a little bit of it would look like. So 1876 came by, which was the 100th year anniversary. Nothing was really done. The arm was and the torch were finished. So they actually shipped that over to Philadelphia for the Philadelphia Centennial Celebration to sort of raise some awareness for this. 
And, you know, tourists could like pay 50 cents to go up into the arm. And it created a lot of buzz. And so the, the sort of the equivalent of the Franco-American Union, the Union League of New York, in January of 1877, agreed to take on some of the fundraising for the U.S. And we just had to pay for the pedestal. We weren't paying for the statue. We were, just, just keep this in mind once you hear this what I think is kind of tragic story. We were only we're supposed have to, to get pay you off the pedestal. <laughs> we were only supposed to pay for the pedestal, and, well, and we did have to come up with the land. Oh, sure, of course, and install right, well, the thing. Right. Well, and, and, and actually, in February of that year of 1877, Congress actually votes to accept the gift because right. you know they could have just given it to us and be like, "Well, we don't really have a place to put it." But this way, they could. It was like a federal land grant, and so like the we would take care of the land, and it would be. I mean, it was a gift that we wanted, and and we would take care of her. Right. The torch itself was then transported to Madison Square Park, okay. where it was where it was there for several months, and just to drum up some uh, support for New Yorkers. And these are they're amazing photos. Absolutely. You'll be posting tomorrow. Incredible photos of just old New York City and then smack down, boom, there's like an arm and a torch. And just to think that that's like a little bit of a... And Madison Square Park is just at 23rd Street at the intersection. I mean, right now it's right next to the Flatiron Building and everything, but like you just have to picture it with not those buildings around and just it's a fairly new park and then there's the arm. (laughs) (laughs) And the torch, yeah. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. But so anyway, but while that that was the adventure the arm was going on, the head was actually going on its own adventure. Is that right. correct? The when well, the, the Paris Expo, there the was Paris a, Expo was yeah. happening in 1878, and they were trying to get the head finished in time for the expo, so that again they could shore up mm-hmm. some excitement for the for the statue and also some more money. So yeah. you have really both sides competing in a race for time to raise enough <laughs> money to get their respective parts of the yes. statue done. And the yeah, but the Fran- the the French do it. Well, they did it in 1878. The head was finished. People mm-hmm. were going up and climbing up inside and and they were raising money other ways too. Around this time there were a couple setbacks, however, as Violet Le Duc, the engineer, oh, re- yes. actually became ill and passed away in 1879. He was replaced by Alexandre Gustave Eiffel. 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 Voilà, Eiffel. And this would be before Eiffel would actually go off and build his 
tower. Um, right at this time, he was actually known for building bridges, right? Right. The, the, the Eiffel Tower wasn't built until the 1889 mm-hmm. World Fair. Eiffel took over as an engineer for the project, and the foundry was also, also sold to some other partners. So it became the Gaget, Gautier, and Company oh. Foundry, which at least sounds very good. And Eiffel was working there, and little by little, he constructed a new framework. because right. Well, the original one was sort of an base of sand isn't that right. correct isn't that what uh violet isn't that what how he wanted it but they he scrapped that idea and came up with a concept of like like an interior skeleton right. so to speak these four iron posts that were just sort of a, like a a tower like a rectangle tower then they had sort of like a secondary uh iron skeleton on there and these iron bolts sort of like leaned out and the, those were the where the copper were, were attached to, the copper plates. And the copper plates themselves were made in this style called the repose. Is that mm-hmm. am I saying correctly? Sure. Where it's copper that's basically hammered from the back. And in, in some of the pictures that we've, we've seen, there's pieces of wood that were used to sort of like insulate the copper from the sort of beating, right. but creating these very smooth and delicate lines. And so you, it is really incredible to think of these massive amounts of copper being hammered out in these shapes of the folds of her dress or just the details of her face. Mm. And all of these then being attached to a framework that was attached to iron bars. I mean, it looks very modern when you look at these photos and you see this. This innovation is the kind of thing that you could see today in in the construction, the steel beam construction process. And the, uh, the skeleton itself was done first and then little by little she just grows it's kind of like she's pulling up her skin <laughs> so these, not to be yeah. gross but i mean she just kind of like yeah took took form and this became something of a tourist attraction well, it took as like, well in it, Paris. it took like three it's like 1881 was when the skeleton part was built but then it took three more years for the copper flesh to basically come up around her right correct and during that time three hundred thousand people in paris actually visited wow. and watched watched her take shape well, um, that's it's well, it's amazing looking. I'm sure it was incredible. Well, let's not forget, however. I mean, you said it took three years, but in '82, so just one year into it. Well, don't forget that her her arm and the oh, torch right. were actually in New York, and they had to take well, it. Well, they they were ship shipped it back. back to that's Paris, correct. Right. So it looks like the statue's all ready to come on over to the well, United it's States. It's done. January 1884, the statue is done, ready to go. What's going on in the U.S. And well, in 1881, that's when the skeleton was made. You know, we 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 hired the designer for the pedestal. All we had to do was the pedestal. I'm just saying that again, right? Again, and right. we're not full of self-loathing <laughs> no, no, by no, any no. chance. But but this is kind of a funny well. Richard story. Morris Hunt is a, was hired to design the pedestal, and in October of 1883, uh, the construction actually began on the foundation of the pedestal, not even the whole pedestal. But what happened is they couldn't raise enough money. There mm. was not enough money in the coffers, essentially. So, so just what came to a halt? Uh, pretty much. I mean, in in 1884, the foundation was completed, but well, then, only the foundation, the foundation, not, the not even the pedestal. And so, at, it's at like one the basement. Point, in 1885, the Statue of Liberty actually comes into New York Harbor. What's the name of the ship? It's the the Isère, the Isère, which was a French naval boat. Yeah. The committee for the pedestal. Okay, so the, the it's here. The statue's here. In boxes, 214 crates. There was $3,000 left in the treasury for the pedestal, and the pedestal was not completed. So all you need is to get one really disgruntled man 
with a powerful pen. With a, lot, a powerful pen, a lot of money. And then his name was Joseph Pulitzer. And we should say that Joseph Pulitzer was a Hungarian-born immigrant, came to the U.S. and started up some newspapers. He owned the New York World, and he was offended that the city couldn't seem to drum up enough cash for this project. Rewinding it back to 1883, when the construction began on the, the foundation for the pedestal, he lambasted New York's society folk and the, you know the social elite for not giving more money. He actually wrote in an editorial on October 8, 1883, we have more than 100 millionaires in this city, any of whom might have written a check for the whole sum. Towards a foreign ballet dancer, their hearts and pockets would have opened. So two years later, when the ship was actually here with 214 crates containing the statue, She's there. they yeah. still didn't have enough money. At this point, he was really mad. Yes. <laughs> and so he decided to take action and said that he would publish the names of anybody who gave anything. It, it, it worked. People started donating by in, in droves. They started sending their money into Any, the world. All, all amounts of money. This, he got a note with t- uh, $25 uh, in it saying, Since leaving smoking cigarettes, I have gained 25 pounds, so I cheerfully enclose a penny for each pound. I'm sorry, that was 25 pennies. Having increased my stature, my own stature, I donate this to the Statue of Liberty. But children were doing it. Like Groups of school children were getting their money together. That same year, by August, the the world had announced that they had raised $100,000, enough to finish the entire pedestal. And so they which, were finally able to finish it in April of 1886. Now, you know, Liberty's been in boxes for a little bit, but we did finally finish it. And then at that point, they just all, really all they had to do was assemble it. So they just took her out of the boxes. It took four months to assemble the skeleton and put all the copper plates. Four months is pretty impressive, I, I think. Yeah, I, I think mean, so. Because it really could have gone, this is where it could have all gone wrong. I think the, it would take longer now, actually. I mean, I mean with all the safety standards. Well, the, you, know, the pe- people- you know, the pedestal was built kind of in a rush. The statue's been in boxes for months. Things could really have gotten kind of messy here. But in fact, it, it all worked. And on October 28th, 1886, was the in- official unveiling. I guess officially, you know, her birthday. I her guess. birthday. She was born on the 28th of October. A million people stood around and watched, packing into the harbor, looking out on boats. You can imagine the whole scene. And on Bedloe's Island itself, there were 2,000 people who had been Mm -hmm. invited. 2,000 people, and how many of them were women? I mean, we were honoring a gigantic woman, and there were only two women of the 2,000 people. Isn't that interesting? On the island. On the island. Well, yes, on the island. Also, in in, in none of the speeches were the words sort of immigrants, immigration ever uttered, which is going to seem kind of weird Mm. shortly thereafter. President Cleveland was there and gave a speech. And of course, the the unveiling ceremony wasn't without its little Was it literally unveiled? I mean, was there like a, like a, like a, some sort of a covering on it? Well, she had a kind of drape over her head. <laughs> so <laughs> weird. we laughing? It just it's seems just, so strange. She was so huge covered. Yeah. yeah. She was covered. And it was during one of the speeches, um, there was a young boy who was given the honor mm-hmm. of waving up to Bart- Bartoldi, who was up in the crown, mm-hmm. who would then pull a rope and by pulling the rope, unveil the statue. Well, the boy missed his cue. He got to it early. He was full of nerves. I mean, you can imagine there are a million sure, people watching, of course. you know. And I guess during the senator's speech, the senator took a pause, as mm-hmm. one does. The boy thought that was the end. He waved up to Bartoldi. Bartoldi pulled the cord. 
the drape fell and everybody cheered and <laughs> boats honked their horns. And so the Statue of Liberty has arrived in New York City. A bit prematurely. Yes, that's, yes, but that's okay. But with fanfare. What's incredible, the, I mean, sure, a statue in a harbor, that's pretty impressive. That would have been amazing. What created its iconic status, though, was all of the new Americans that were coming over at this time. The immigrants all coming in through New York Harbor on their, you know, en route to Ellis Island, passing this amazing statue and she began to represent something a little bit different than what may have been on the minds of Bertoldi. It was literally this, this idea of like hope of liberty's accessibility that these immigrants could come and like, well, I can really get these things they are offered here in the United States. Though, of course, there was some confusion, I think. I, I read an account as well. I agree with everything you're saying. Mm-hmm. But I, I also read that not everybody of course, understood her significance. Some people even thought that maybe that's where Christopher Columbus was buried, underneath her. What did this what? Really? You know, people's... <laughs> that's, that's very... That is... That someone is very confused. <laughs> the reputation of Liberty as open arms, all people welcome into her bosom, so to speak, basically was solidified by Emma Lazarus and, of, and of course, the poem the new Colossus, a little bit about her. She was a writer of, you know, some renown in in New York society at that time. There was a a committee before the pedestal was built to raise money. And a lot of artists came and donated works and Mark Twain even donated something. She had actually read that poem was read and was had been published in various places, but it didn't really make a lot of a splash or anything. Then unfortunately she died in 1884 a friend of hers um, from the Schuyler family, uh, Georgina Schuyler, that was it's an old New York old money family, wanted to honor her friend. And so they actually paid for a tablet to be attached to the Statue of Liberty that had her, her poem on it. And of course, it's the, the new Colossus, you know, with the famous line, you know, give Can me you your read tired. It for us? Sure. I no, think- well, I'll, well I'll, read, I'll read it. I'll give a little abridgment. Yeah, to I it. think this is an appropriate sure. okay, time. Sure. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land, that being the Colossus of Rhodes, Mm -hmm. which we talked about. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates, the New York Harbor, shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Basically, just give us your castoffs. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. So that's, that is underneath the Statue of Liberty. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> My little dramatic... That was nice. I was that making was these really... hand gestures and everything, wasn't I? Yeah. Now we have Lady Liberty. She's standing there. She's been constructed. There is a celebration of Franco-American friendship and a celebration of the new wave of Americans arriving exactly. daily throughout this period. So part of her modern history, her torch has been replaced two or three times. 
Uh, one was had a gold, a glass pane, but then water ran through it, and so then they replaced it with the current one in the 1980s. In 1956, it was officially called Liberty Island because uh, before that, it didn't have that official name, though everyone called it, it that. But still, Bedloe's Island. It right. was completely restored yes. for the centennial in 1986. Some of you might be old enough to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Soon after, I think it was David Copperfield tried to make it disappear, <laughs> and unfortunately, in, uh, after September 11th, the actual interior was closed you used to be able to like walk up inside of her and go up to her little crown but uh, you cannot do that anymore the park service says it is still closed but however but there's a, a bill in congress to maybe overturn that and there are a lot of uh new york politicians who are just really up in arms about this and want to get this changed but, but you can still visit her today yes and walk up to the pedestal so the correct, the correct. Now, what I mentioned earlier, what I wanted to say to all you native New Yorkers out there and all you people who have lived here for a long time and just never visited there because you're like, oh, there's too many people, there's too many tourists. Let me tell you, you have to go. To be able to really see that for the first time after living here and kind of taking it for granted in a strange way and li- letting it be a background and not really uh, involving yourself with it and then finally seeing it close up is really a powerful thing. And I think living here for a long time and exposing yourself to it is an incredible experience. So I would recommend all you native New Yorkers out there to just go out and do it. Now, if you're a tourist into the city, I would also recommend you do it unless you don't have very much time. If you're only here for two or three days, there is a cheaper way of seeing Statue of Liberty, and that's called the Staten Island Ferry, and it's free, and it just goes back and forth right in front of it. There's, a, there's a, you know, it a lo- does not stop. We need to emphasize that it doesn't stop at the at the statue oh, right. or at the island. It doesn't stop at the island, but it goes past it. You can take all your pictures. The thing is, if you you might want to go see the island, but kind of expensive. There are huge crowds, even in, even early morning, and like I said, it's an additional charge to just go up and. To the pedestal. So, you know, and you're talking about like a three or four hour excursion. Now you do, you can pay a little extra money and go to Ellis Island also, but it can take pretty much an entire afternoon just to do this. So I would just recommend if you have a lot of time to do it, but if you don't, you know, there's free ways to see it and there's so much to do in New York City that, you know, you won't be missing out. So. Well, there you go. There's your little tip from the Bowery Boys for more tips. Watch this segue. (laughs) <laughs> Go online to BoweryBoysPodcast.com. Greg updates the site every day with another great fact about New York City history. And we'll have some pictures of uh, the construction of the Statue of Liberty this, for this week. And uh, we have uh, all of our old podcasts up there you, that you can listen to as well, or you, they're all available on iTunes as well. So. You can also email us any suggestions, uh, corrections, or just to say hi. And we uh, thank you all very much for listening and sitting with us through the great Statue of Liberty. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week. Building a stronger financial foundation? Good plan. Northwestern Mutual's Guide to Good Financial Planning can help you balance spending and saving, set goals, and start creating the life you want to be living. You'll learn how the tools in your financial plan reinforce each other to help you minimize taxes and offset potential risks. Grow your confidence by strengthening your finances today at northwesternmutual.com slash good plan. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin.